The following is a sermon from the church at Cherrydale in Greenville, South Carolina. To learn more, visit us at tccherrydale.com. Good morning. Uh, if the ushers would come down at this time uh, to take up our morning offering, uh, I would greatly appreciate it. Uh, in fact, I'll tell you that I feel like I've kind of grown up as a pastor here at TCC because Toby didn't remind me to take up the offering this morning. So uh, that, that means that you've got your, uh, your bona fides, I guess. Uh, I'm Donnie Mathis, uh, one of the pastors here at TCC, and I'm glad that you have braved getting out in the weather uh, this morning to be here. Uh, for those of you who may not know me, uh, I'm a New Testament professor at North Greenville University. Uh, my wife, Amber, is the children's minister here at TCC. We have two children, Trace, who's six, and Hallie, who is two. I'm going to do things a little different this morning. I'm going to take a little pastoral privilege and kind of combine the introduction of my sermon uh, with our missionary moment. So, this morning, we're studying the book of Acts. I want you to consider this idea. As we look at missionary stories throughout the latter part of the book of Acts, I want you to consider this particular thing here. As the gospel goes forward in chapter 8, this is the sort of guiding thing we're going to be thinking about today. God writes missionary stories with unexpected people who declare the gospel in unexpected places. So let's think about that again. God writes missionary stories with unexpected people who declare the gospel in unexpected places. So as we begin this morning, I want to tell you the story of a woman who was an amazing missionary. She was a woman that I met in the fall of 1979 when I was eight years old. Her name was Ethel Harmon. I met her when my dad was called to be the pastor of Central Baptist Church in Corbin, Kentucky. She was a single, never married, retired missionary. And over the last couple of weeks as we've talked about missionary stories, I've been very convicted, frankly, of my idiocy of youth that I didn't get to know this lady more. But over the last couple of weeks, I've been inspired to think about her life and my remembrances of her to the point that I got my dad to mail me a copy of her autobiography this week. And I'm embarrassed to admit that as a child, I was not very impressed with her. Because to look at her in her 70s, she was not very impressive from worldly standards. She definitely would not have fit in at TCC, not because of her music tastes or different dress code, but because she would have been at the worship gathering 15 or maybe even 30 minutes early, which frankly none of us are. She would have thought, amen, that's right. And on a day like today, she would have had these clear rubber boot type shoes that she put over her black dress shoes. It's amazing the things that you still remember, maybe because I thought they were strange, for the short walk from her home to the church. 
But yesterday, as I began reading the beginning parts of her story in her book, his call, Go Ye to Nigeria, I wept within the first page. When I learned that she was the third of five daughters, the last of which was born a couple of weeks after their father died, she was born in 1905 in a place that, I'll be honest, was less than 10 miles from where I grew up, but I had to look it up on Google Maps to know exactly where it was. It was in the reading of the first few pages of the, the book that I realized that she had been working. Back in these days, you could work as a teacher at elementary schools, particularly in the mountains of eastern Kentucky, without a degree, you could earn a teaching certificate by your experience, and her plan was to work for 10 years to earn money so that she could go to what is now the University of the Cumberlands, which was a two-year institution back then, eventually go to the Missionary Training Center in Louisville, which was essentially the equivalent of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary for women at the time, so that eventually she could get a college degree and go on the mission field. This was something that God placed in her heart from the time that she was very young. But in reading, I learned for the first time that the old folks' Sunday school classroom in the church where I grew up was named for a woman who got other women together to pay for her last two years of college and last year of study at the women's training school in Louisville so that Ethel could get to Africa faster. When she left in 1938, she was going there with the intention of dying in Africa. To tell people about Jesus was the goal of her life. Miss Ethel served in Nigeria for 34 years. She led, as far as anyone knows, the first Southern Baptist Vacation Bible School on the continent of Africa. And while she was on the boat over to Africa, she was told that it wouldn't work, but it did. She was the director of the Sunday school program, it seems, for all of the country of Nigeria for a time. Miss Ethel was such an unexpected person from such an unexpected place. But God wrote her story into his missionary story in a way that no one could have ever predicted of this poor third child from the middle of nowhere. The most impressive thing about Miss Ethel was that, well, frankly, something that no one knew. In her youth, she was a quite good artist. No one in our church knew that Miss Ethel could paint at all, that she had any artistic skill or talent. But one spring, I think, for some reason, as an outreach to the community, our church had an art fair. And she decided she was going to show off a couple of her pieces. One was of Cumberland Falls, which is just down the road from where I grew up. And one was of the shepherd in Luke chapter 15, reaching down into a ravine to save one lost sheep. They were beautiful. That was it. 
Only two. And my dad asked her why there weren't more paintings, especially why aren't there paintings from your time in Nigeria? Paintings of the things that you saw there. And her response, I think, gets to the heart of why she could be that unexpected person who served in that unexpected place. She told him the story of how she was packing up her things to get on a train for New York where she would catch the first boat that would send her to London. And by the way, remember this is in 1938. Things were beginning to get a little dicey in Europe at this time. And then she would get on a boat from there and go to Nigeria. And she recounted how God spoke to her and told her to leave behind her paintbrushes, her paints, and her canvases. And this is how she said it. She said that she heard God say to her, Ethel, she had a very deep, gruff voice for a woman with such a loving heart. Ethel, leave behind these paintbrushes and canvases because you will spend too much time painting the beauty of what I've created in Nigeria and not enough time telling people there about Jesus. Miss Ethel was the definition of an unexpected person declaring the gospel in an unexpected place. And my prayer for all of us this morning as we examine what happens here in Acts chapter 8 that none of us when we come to the end of our lives would say that we have not spent enough time telling the people around us about Jesus. So, let's look in chapter 8. In chapter 8, we meet Philip. In this transitional section, Luke is beginning to wrap up the ministry of the Twelve, particularly Peter in Jerusalem, and is preparing to explain to Theophilus and his other readers how the gospel finally spread to the Gentiles, people like them, through the amazing ministry of Paul, who was also known as Saul in Jewish circles. We'll meet him in the next chapter. We've already heard a little bit about him at the beginning of chapter 8. In between the stories of Peter and Paul, these two great apostles, Luke is going to tell us a couple of fairly quick, in the context of the whole book, quick stories about two rather obscure people. We won't hear much of anything about them outside of this little section from chapter 6 to 8. These servants who first come into view because they are Greek-speaking Jews who've become Christians. They have a good and trustworthy reputation and they're so led by the Spirit that they're willing to take care of the widows in the daily distribution of food to the church there in Jerusalem. The first, we've already seen last week, Stephen... The second on the list that we're going to look at today is Philip. But you see, they were not just servants who took care of the widows in the local church. And that certainly was a very important thing to maintain the unity of the body. They were something else. Through their faith in Jesus, their stories, the stories of their lives, the stories, honestly, as we look at the story of Stephen, that were most likely interwoven with a fierce nationalism that caused them to move from wherever they were in the Greek-speaking world to Jerusalem, to be there in Jerusalem, to be there among God's people, as it were. Their story 
maybe a story of even hatred of those outside, had become interwoven into God's missionary story to give power to his followers so that they could declare the gospel. And that's what Stephen has done and what Philip will do. And they're going to do this under Jesus' authority. And they're going to play a role, both of them, in causing the wall that separated the Jews from the others, from the Gentiles, from the Samaritans, to come tumbling down and to be annihilated forever. Last week... Matt did a great job of telling the story of Stephen's martyrdom and how his story should affect ours. This week, we're going to meet another rather unexpected person. We're going to meet this guy, Philip, who's going to declare the gospel in two very unexpected places. And the amazing thing about it is that God sent Philip to these places By his sovereign hand, one of them, because that guy saw the Pharisee, who ironically was causing the gospel to spread even in his unbelief, was wanting to kill him. And the other, because the angel of the Lord commanded him. Now, you might be a little afraid. We've got 37 verses or so. We're just going to look at the story of the Ethiopian as we continue. So it begins with the setup. This is the way Luke sets up the story. He says... An angel of the Lord spoke to Philip. Get up and go to the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is the desert road. So he got up and went. There was an Ethiopian man, a eunuch and high official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of her entire treasury. He had come to worship in Jerusalem and was sitting in his chariot on his way home, reading the prophet Isaiah aloud. Okay, so that brings us to the next. So everything's set up. We've got a guy on a road, sitting in his chariot, riding along behind his horse. Now, the spirit told Philip, go and join that chariot. When Philip ran up to it, he heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, do you understand what you're reading? So just to make sure we've got all of our, our, our minds in the right place, we've got a guy riding on a chariot. We've got Philip running beside the chariot, trying to keep up and trying to ask As the chariot goes along, do you understand what you're reading? (coughs) Excuse me. How can I, he said, unless someone guides me? So he invited Philip, probably to his great pleasure, to come up and sit with him in the chariot. Now the scripture passage he was reading was this. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb is silent before its shears, so he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who will describe his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. The eunuch said to Philip, I ask you, who is the prophet saying this about? Himself or someone else? Philip proceeded to tell him the good news about Jesus, beginning with that scripture. Then the result. Now remember, this is a desert place. Middle of nowhere, In a desert, as they were traveling down the road, they came to some water. Which, by the way, by definition, you don't find that in the desert. You see, God is sovereignly working in a miraculous way. As they were traveling down the road, they came to some water. The eunuch said, look, there's water. What would keep me from being baptized? So we ordered the chariot to stop. 
And both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and he baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. This is the favorite verse in all the Bible for Star Trek fans. When the Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him any longer, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip appeared in Azotus, and he was traveling and preaching the gospel. Notice what he's still doing in all the towns until he came to Caesarea. We're not going to hear for, about him really ever again, except in one little place later. An unexpected person in an unexpected place. So if you want to get a little bit of a visualization of where we are, let's look at it on the map, the unexpected place. So he's going to be run out of town from Jerusalem. He's going to go to this place to the north, Shechem, Samaria area, where there live people that are not Jews. They're kind of surrounded. If you remember from the ministry of Jesus, this was a place that oftentimes would be avoided by folks who were Jews. But when you're running for your life, any port in a storm, right? So he goes north to this area. He's hiding out. He's afraid. But what he does take with him is the gospel, and he begins preaching. So then he's told, after a great harvest in Samaria, to go down. This is the Spirit of God tells him to go, to go down to this road here. It's the blue area. The blue line on here is where Philip goes down in the middle of nowhere to meet one guy. Now think about that for a second. He's in this region of Samaria where there are a good number of people. People are coming to faith in Christ. God says, no, you go down to the middle of nowhere on a road. You don't even know who you're going to meet, but I'm going to take you there for a reason and it's going to make all the difference. And Philip obeys immediately. That's where he meets this guy who's riding in a chariot because the Spirit of the Lord says, go, and he goes, and he meets him, and thankfully he lets him in the chariot. Now here's the favorite part for everybody that's a Star Trek fan. The blue lines are where Philip goes. So Philip's blue line ends there in the middle of nowhere outside of Bethlehem, and then he just shows up over there on the left. It's really cool, right? Probably not going to happen for you, but still pretty awesome. So that brings us then to see how this pretty amazing story This intersects with our story and God's story. Now, that brings us to this question. Where has God saved people in the past? Where has God saved, frankly, his own people in the past? Now, as Matt was preaching last week, I will be perfectly honest, I was really glad that he didn't bring up this particular thing because it sets the table for what's going to come because it's the motivator that sends Philip, you know, along with that death thing where it sends him and the people to whom he goes. So we're not going to read much at all of the speech from last week, but there are a couple of little snippets that I want us to see. One of the things that Stephen brings out in that speech is that God saves everywhere. In fact, most of the time he saves people, it's not in that little strip of land that they were fighting tooth and nail to keep. God's great acts of salvation were actually outside the promised land because he's the king of all the earth. And why are they wanting to kill Stephen? Because Stephen's saying God's the king of the whole earth and he's saving the Gentiles. So let's look. Just a quick history lesson. I promise we won't take long. We start with Abraham. Look at what he says, the very beginning of the sermon. Brothers and fathers, he replied, listen, 
The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. That's not the promised land. Before he settled in Haran and said to him, leave your country and relatives and come to the land that I will show you. God appeared, God showed his glory, God showed himself, God called Abraham, not in the promised land, but when he was living among the Gentiles, and frankly, he was a Gentile. He was a Gentile before he became a Jew. It's very confusing, frankly. All right, now, beyond there, a little bit later on in verses 9 to 12, the patriarchs, remember Jacob's 12 sons, actually I've only got 10 fingers, I'll hold up two toes. The patriarchs became jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him. Verse 10, and rescued him out of all of his troubles. Guess what? Outside of the promised land. He gave him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who appointed him ruler over Egypt and over his own house, his whole household. He's the top dude in all of Egypt. That's not in the promised land. Now a famine and great suffering came over all of Egypt and Cana, that is the promised land, and our ancestors couldn't find food, so where did they go? They went down to Egypt, God had sent them there before, God delivered his people outside of the promised land. See a pattern developing? Verse 29, when he heard this, Moses fled. This is after he killed somebody down in Egypt. Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian. Again, not the promised land. Where he became the father of two sons after 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in the flame of a burning bush. When Moses saw it, God appeared in the middle of nowhere, unexpected place, not the promised land. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. As he was approaching to look at it, the voice of the Lord came, I am the Lord, or I am the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Moses began to tremble and did not dare look. And then God used Moses to deliver the people out. This is what Stephen says. This Moses, whom they rejected when they said, Who appointed you a ruler and judge? This one God sent as a ruler and deliverer through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out and performed wonders and signs in the land of Egypt. Again, outside the promised land. At the Red Sea. Oh yeah, again, outside the promised land. And in the wilderness, one more time outside the promised land for 40 years. So where does God save? God saves everywhere. Not just in Jerusalem, not just in what we call the Holy Land, not just in the promised land. God is the king of the whole earth. And that is Philip's takeaway. Philip is a compatriot of Stephen. Philip is there with Stephen as he goes to the synagogue of the freedmen. He's there because Stephen is the one who spoke. Philip, he didn't get stoned to death. But Philip knows this is the takeaway from Philip. Philip is recognizing this thing that had been so a part of who he was for all of his life. So much so that when he grew up somewhere out in the Gentile lands as a Jew... He so much clung to his Jewish heritage that he was going to go back and live in the promised land because you've got to live there to be close to God and be close to the temple. He realized it was just a lie. I think that Philip's takeaway that drives him to where we see him in this chapter is something like this. Clinging to my identity as a Jew, or really any other identifier, 
rather than my identity in Christ will keep me from fulfilling my missionary story. Clinging to my identity as a Jew, in his case, rather than my identity in Christ will keep me from fulfilling my missionary story. And this is the beginning with not an apostle, with not one of the twelve who walked and talked with Jesus, not the one who's going to meet Jesus on the Damascus Road in the next chapter, a servant that we'll hear about for a verse, frankly just because of his daughters, in chapter 18 or 19, something in that range. And that's it. He's nobody. But because he's recognized this, the walls that separate Jew and Gentile, the wall that separates Jew and Samaritan, are going to start to crumble. Just like Jesus said in chapter 1, verse 8. So that leads us to this question. Who is God saving in chapter 8? Who is God saving? So, this is what we're going to see. We could sum chapter 8 up in this summary statement. God gathers his people into his kingdom. God's going to do this. God's going to accomplish his purpose. God says through Jesus in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 that you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. And now we're finally seeing this take hold. Samaria and the ends of the earth are about to be conquered in the power of the Holy Spirit. God is going to save for himself a people. Well, how's he going to do it? Because unexpected people like Stephen and Philip... And frankly, even though Saul was quite talented, he's rather unexpected too because he did try to destroy God's church because unexpected people are declaring the gospel in unexpected places. God is going to gather his people into his kingdom because unexpected people are declaring the gospel in unexpected places. We know our person, Philip. Well, let's see where he goes. First, we find Philip in Samaria. So let's look at what we see there in verses 4 through 8. We haven't read this yet, so you can follow it up here on the screen. So those who were scattered went on their way preaching the word. Philip went down to a city in Samaria. We don't know which one, but a city in Samaria. And proclaimed the Messiah to them. Crowds were all paying attention to what Philip said. As they listened and saw the signs he was performing, for unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed... And many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. It's giving us a summary of all the great power of God that's being revealed through the word of the Holy Spirit. And then notice this, we're going to pick this up a little bit later on. So there was great joy in that city. So, he goes to Samaria. Well, let's ask ourselves the question, who are these people? Who are these people? Well, these people are hated by the Jews. You pick them up in the story of the Good Samaritan, for instance. And frankly, it's one of the reasons they hated Jesus so much is he made someone like a Samaritan the hero of the story. We see the Samaritan woman where Jesus would normally have walked around Samaria. He goes through Samaria because he wants to meet her and tell her that her past does not define her future because he will transform and save her. Well, these Samaritans, whom the Jews hated, and frankly, the Samaritans hated the Jews back, these are the descendants of those who survived the Assyrian invasion in 720 BC, 722 BC and married the Gentiles who then inhabited the land. So here's the way the Jews saw them. 
This is offensive, frankly. But they saw them as half-breeds, not worthy of, of anything. They were worth nothing except for death at the hands of the one true and living God. They were not and never could be God's people. But that's where Philip goes. So, he goes to this people. And they hear the word of the Lord. They see the signs that Jesus really is the Messiah. Because you see, they have a story too. If you remember from when Jesus was there in John chapter 4, he talks with that woman about some really significant theological issues. And she asked this question about worship. And he says, you know, she says, well, the Jews say worship down in Jerusalem and our folks say worship on Mount Gerizim. You see, they had their own temple, which, by the way, the Jews had burned to the ground a hundred years or so before. They had their own temple. They had their own view of who the Messiah was going to be. And they didn't think that the Jews would have any place in their story. And the Jews certainly didn't think that they had any place in the Jewish story. So they really didn't like each other at all. There's a wall between them. But the wall's coming down. And when they believe the gospel, they're going to realize that Jesus has rewritten their story. Jesus has rewritten the story of their ancestors' idolatry and brokenness that led to the destruction of the northern kingdom. That God has taken this story of idolatry and brokenness and sin and he has woven it into his own missionary story to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. You see, the Samaritans have their story rewritten. Their view of the Messiah has changed because the one true Messiah has come. He has died on the cross. God has raised him up from the dead. And their story has been woven into this story of God's people, this one people of God from every tribe and tongue and people and language. And it's happened because an unexpected person has gone to an unexpected place and God has shown his great power and saved sinners. And he's still doing it today. There's a whole lot of other detail in the story that I hate that we don't have time to get to. I mean, I really hate that we don't have time to get to, but let's look at the next part. We could be here all day. How did the gospel change their identity? How did the gospel change their identity? Well, here it is. It's like what Jordan read a little bit earlier, and we're going to see this again with the eunuch. God, or King Jesus, has given them his name and placed them in his family. You see, their identifier, their number one marker of who they are is no longer the Samaritan. It's child of the king. There is nothing that defines them beyond that marker. Where they're from, what they've done, the, the brokenness of their lives, the terrible decisions they've made, the idolatry, the heresy that they've believed, all of that vanishes and evaporates in the reality that they've been brought into the family of the king. Their past doesn't matter because their king has transformed them, made them into his own child, and he has given them a hope and a future with him in his house forever. They don't have to look to a mountain, to a building that's been burned down. They don't have to look to the south, to Jerusalem, to a building that will be burned down. 
They are a part of the family and in the house of the one true and living God. Now, that brings us to the second character, the eunuch, the man from Ethiopia. We read earlier in verses 34 to 39 about what happened in the interaction between Philip and the eunuch, but let's read it again. Let's pay attention to a couple of things that are going to appear. The eunuch said to Philip, now that he's gotten into the chariot, I ask you, after he's read this passage from Isaiah 53, which let's be honest, at this point in the telling of the story of Jesus, if you hear someone reading from Isaiah 53 about a lamb that was taken to slaughter and how he didn't open his mouth and how justice was denied him and how he died for the iniquity of his people, like this is like taking the ball and putting it on a tee and saying, all right, Philip, if you don't knock this out of the park, you've lost your credentials. And the eunuch asked a question. Who's the prophet saying this about? Is he saying it about himself or someone else? There was a lot of debate in religious circles. It always oftentimes starts with a religious discussion and argument. Was he talking about himself? Was he talking about the Messiah? Was he talking about Israel? As Let's just be honest. There's no way that could be the case, although they some argued it. And Philip proceeded to tell him the good news about Jesus, beginning with that scripture. An unexpected person in an unexpected place declaring the gospel that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the deliverer of God's people, that Jesus is the one we're going to find out that this Samaritan was waiting for. Then it goes on. As they were traveling down the road, they came to some water. The eunuch said, look, there's water. What would keep me from being baptized? What would prevent me? All the hindrances are removed. Like he's believed... But the hindrance is uh, he, needs, he wants to be baptized. He wants to show that he's a part of God's people. He wants to follow in obedience to the command of Jesus. And he's in the middle of nowhere. What is he going to do? And oh, by the way, eh, God just brings him by some water in the middle of the desert. Imagine that. So we were the chariot to stop. And both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water. And he baptized him. And they came up out of the water. The Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch did not see him any longer. But then notice that refrain but he went on his way rejoicing the samaritans had great joy he went on his way rejoicing just tuck that away all right so let's look at this man who is this man this man was an ethiopian now this is probably a little bit north of present-day ethiopia but he is a God-fearer. And this is a group of folks we're going to see along the way in the next few chapters. This is essentially a Gentile who's gotten fed up with the gods of his people, who believes that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the only true God, but they've not gone through the process of becoming a Jew. Circumcision, keeping the food laws, things like that. And as a eunuch, he really was going to be out of luck either way. But he was the finance minister of his country. So here you have a man, very different, frankly, from the Samaritans. He's a man of wealth, even though he has been treated in the way that he was to get to this point in life. But here we have the gospel expanding to the Gentiles, and even down this early, maybe two, three years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, down into 
sub-Saharan Africa. So how did his story change? His story changed in an amazing way. Because here's the thing. He had just come from Jerusalem. He had gone there to worship the one true and living God. But he was always going to be on the outside looking in. Because of the fact that he was a eunuch, because of this history of his life, he was always going to be on the outside. He was never, in the mind of the Jews, going to have any avenue or option to be brought into God's family. And now that he's heard the story of the good news about Jesus Christ, his story has been written into God's missionary story because all the barriers that he had seen quite literally in the temple from which he had just come all the barriers that stood between him and God have been exploded in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the king of the universe. Jesus is the king of the Ethiopian. Jesus is the king of the Jews. Jesus is the king of kings and lord of lords. And he's being invited into this family and given a place. Because where was he reading? Oh yeah, that's right, he was reading in Isaiah 53. Do you recall the passage that Jordan read a little earlier? Just a couple of pages, a little further down his scroll. And in that we're going to see how his identity has changed. He's not one who bears the name eunuch anymore. God has kept his word. God has been faithful to his promise. And he now bears God's name and will live in God's house forever. Look at what Isaiah 56 verses 3 to 5 says. No foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord should say the Lord will exclude me from his people. That's his story. He's standing there at the temple excluded from God's story. There's no way over the barrier. And God says in his word, he's read this. There is no way that a Gentile should say the Lord will exclude me from his people. So what is he, like, what is he thinking? This is what God says and this is what I've experienced. Which one is true? Here's the thing. What God says is always going to be true. Our experience is usually going to lie. The Lord will exclude me from his people? Don't say that. And the eunuch should not say, like, this is me, he's saying. Look, I'm a dried up tree. I have no hope of ancestry. I have no hope of a name going on beyond my life. For the Lord says this. For the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath and choose what pleases me and hold firmly to my covenant, I will give them in my house and within my walls. In the place that he's just seen, you're not welcome. I will give them a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give each of them an everlasting name that will never be cut off. And the passage in Isaiah ends with rejoicing. Just like the Samaritans and just like this eunuch. His identity has been wholly and completely transformed. He's not a eunuch anymore. He's not an Ethiopian ultimately anymore. He's not the minister of a finance in a company or in a country, which is a pretty big deal. He's a child of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So that brings us to where the rubber meets the road. How must my life change? If I'm going to live the life that God has called me to live, if I'm going to flourish 
and have a, 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 a life that is all that I long for and frankly all that God has for me, how is my life going to have to change from this day forward? I think there are kind of three things. As we ask ourselves, and maybe there are others, but three things that come to my mind. As we ask this question, what is the Holy Spirit calling me to do in response to his word? There are three things I think we should consider. We need to believe, we need to live, and we need to declare. So let's start with believe. We need to believe the gospel. If you're here this morning and you've never placed your faith in Jesus, if your story is where we begin this story in Samaria... If your story is where the eunuch story begins and you are far from God and you think that there is no way that your story can be written into God's missionary story, you need to know that that is a lie that is being told to you by the devil. There is an invitation, an open invitation for you into God's family to receive his name, to forever have his name emblazoned upon you as son or daughter, regardless of all the things that have happened in the past. Jesus' death and resurrection is enough to bring the forgiveness of that sins, to cleanse you from all unrighteousness, to bring you into his family and to make you his own and to give you a name that will be yours forever. Child of the King. In the moment when we sing uh, songs of celebration of what God has done, there are pastors going to be on both sides here. You come down. If you don't know how to place your faith in Jesus Christ, they will be more than overjoyed to tell you how your story can be rewritten today. It's the most important thing that you will ever, ever do. If the Spirit is calling you to believe today, Repent and believe the gospel and have your story rewritten and put into the greatest story that's ever been told and the greatest story that will have its ending when Christ our King returns. The second thing is those of us who have already placed our faith in Jesus, we need to gain our identity from Christ alone. Now this is very counter, frankly, to what you hear oftentimes in our culture. And counter, frankly, to what we oftentimes think and feel. But our hearts are deceitful. Our number one identifier, the thing that everything in our lives has to fall under is the identity of who we are in Christ. If we are Christ, we are heirs of the promise. We are the children of the one true and living God. And that means that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God that is ours in Christ Jesus. That is who we are. Period end of sentence. But there are so many things in our lives that want to compete to be the thing where we find our identity and they're all going to come up way short. In our country in particular, we are, we are oftentimes pressed to think that our identity comes from our job and the pursuit of wealth. 
But the gospel says that is a fraud. Because you can gain the whole world and lose your life. Or maybe ethnicity. There are ways that we use this part of who we are as an identifier. It's not going to go away when we're converted, and, and frankly it shouldn't, but it's not ever the number one identifier of who we are, and it never should play a role in who we go to to share the gospel. Ever. So not from job, not from ethnicity, not from family. Our identifier is not in who we are as a family. This eunuch is never going to have a family, but he has a name written in the very presence of God that will last forever better than sons or daughters could ever be. Not from sexuality. This is something you're going to hear that we are defined by that. We are defined as people who have submitted all of our lives under the authority and kingship of Jesus and that he has kingship and lordship over all of these things. And frankly, if there's anything else you can think of, and I'm sure there are, all of those things are subsumed under the kingship of Jesus. He is our master. He is our Lord. And if we're going to be defined by anything, it has to be by him first and foremost. And lastly... We, not Ethel Harmon, not some two or three who are missionaries on the other side of the earth, not those that we support through our church and all of those things are important. We are the unexpected people who declare the gospel in unexpected places. And they might not be so cool as at the foot of Mount Gerizim or in a desert outside of Bethlehem and and we may never get beamed up from the desert to Ozitus. But we're going to find ourselves this week, maybe even five minutes from now, in an unexpected place. Maybe even the unexpected place within the four walls of this room. And we're going to be confronted with an opportunity to tell people about Jesus. And you think, well, who am I? You're a person who is a child of the king. And he has given you his word. He has given you himself. And you are the unexpected person wherever you find yourself in the most unexpected place. God is at work to call his people to declare his name wherever they find themselves. Our responsibility is to have our minds and our missionary stories so retrained that we realize that there are no unexpected places. That we should live every moment of every day with the expectation that this is the place where I get to tell people about my King. And God will show His power to rewrite the story of an unexpected person that He's brought on your path, just like he brought the eunuch on the path of Philip. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we come to this time of celebration and response, that your people would listen to the voice of your Spirit. And they would say yes 
that those who have not yet come to faith in Christ would find one of the pastors, would find a person to their right or their left and, and, and in the midst of what might be an unexpected place. It's not unexpected to you and you are going to rewrite their story from a story of death and sadness and sorrow into a story of hope, a story of victory. And Lord, I pray that for those of us who are your children, that as we walk out of this place, that we would find our identity not in the things, frankly, that we're proud of and not even in the things that we're ashamed of that we've done, but that our identity would be in the risen King who dwells in us, Jesus the Lord. And as a result of the fact that we have been so grounded in the fact that Jesus is our identifier, that we would be the unexpected people who recognize at the end of the day there are no unexpected places. Because every place is a place where you're at work. And working through us as you write our missionary story to bring sinners to salvation. That we've been given the responsibility to, to seek out the lost sheep. To recognize that wherever we find ourselves, you've placed us there to tell that Jesus is King. And I pray that we would see the fruit of your Spirit's work in our lives for the rest of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.